Yo, 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 this is Brad Rickle. Welcome to the Brad Rickle Brief. On today's episode, I am excited to cover a reread book review of Scott Adams, How to Fail Big at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. It has been a little bit since I have published a podcast. My parents were in town recently. Uh, It was actually a really nice break. My mom and dad have zero interest on being in the podcast, but it was a huge help to have them in the house, particularly just give Mallory and I a break you know, from the baby, get a couple extra hours of sleep. That part was tremendous. So don't knock them for, for not wanting to come on the podcast, but their refusal to, um, to listen to the podcast, I think is something a little less than desirable. But we're talking about today's episode, and we're talking about book reviews and rereading. The concepts of rereading a book is interesting, More or less, when people read books, they read a book and then they never think about it again. And it doesn't really matter if you read a book once and you don't have anything retained. Books are kind of like meals in the sense that you don't remember everything that you read, much like you don't remember all the meals that you've had, but they still make up who you are. Having books that you like so much that you want to take notes on, you want to earmark, whether that's in a notebook itself or in the actual book in the the margins... You want to put it on the shelf and you think to yourself, I really like that book and I want to read it again. And those are the most interesting books to me. That's my definition of a good book and a good author. Those books that you pick up and feel compelled to read again, to hold on to it. You don't want to just throw it away or donate it to the library. And How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big by Scott Adams is that kind of book for me. Scott Adams is famous for Dilbert. He's a best-selling author. Dilbert comics are well-known. Scott Adams just nails what office culture is like, and he's hilarious with the, with the cartoon. It's simple and effective. Reading, for me, is more exploratory than anything else. I'm searching for other people's perspectives on matters that I just don't know enough about, or maybe they have an interesting angle on a, on a subject that I am familiar with. And some books just really gravitate towards me, and some authors. And my library is made up primarily in two parts, books that I've read and like enough to want to reread in the future. But then there's this other part. uh, It's the anti-library. It's the books that I've purchased that I haven't read yet that are sitting there. Here's an interesting thought. Instead of asking people for a book recommendation, it would be more interesting to ask what books have you read more than once? People make recommendations for books I think, to increase social status primarily. And there's, there's going to be some exceptions. And the more friendly you are with someone, the more that you trust them. Chances are, if you don't know that person, they might be more inclined to recommend Brothers Karamazov that they read in Freshman Year of Philosophy compared to a book they really enjoy, something like Twilight. On my list of books that I've reread, Zero to One by Peter Thiel, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, and this book, How to Fail at Almost Anything, and Still Win Big by Scott Adams. There are more books on my shelf that I want to get into to rereading, and I'm going to try a new reading schedule where I read a new book, and then I reread an old book. So I just reread Scott Adams, and now I'm reading a new book, What I Learned by Losing a Million Dollars by Jim Paul. Rereading is great because you can fly through the content. This Scott Adams book is pretty breezy, 220-ish pages, but the first time I went through it, I was slow to go through it. It was kind of not, not a slog, but I was just trying to take notes and retain what he was talking about, 
trying to make connections from the book into my life to grease the neurological grooves, if you will. This time it was much quicker. I remembered most of his talking points already that he was trying to make, so there wasn't as much pause for deep thought this time around. It was more or less just making those connections again. And it was a nice reminder to think back on how I took points from the book the first time around compared to where I am now in life, because it was a few years ago. And maybe that's what I enjoy most about rereading. We change over time. And when I read one sentence a few years ago, it meant something totally different to me than what it does now in my current state. And it's nice to reflect on the change that I've made interpersonally. So why do I like this book? How to fail at almost everything and still win big. I think Scott Adams has a good practical approach to life. Most people give the Facebook version of themselves. People speak about the top 10% of their lives compared to the whole thing. They don't talk about their failures and their imperfections. Most of our lives are pretty average. There's ups and downs, peaks and valleys, strikes and gutters. And we have this perception that if we show our imperfections, then we're failing. And that's what I like particularly about this book. He starts it off saying that people try to hide their failures and their imperfections, but it's the failures that he's learned the most from. And the only reason that he is successful today is because of the failures that he's had in the past. And he runs into the first part of the book talking about how being the best at something is overrated. That statistically, being the best is unlikely, but most people can serve themselves by being good at multiple skills. It's often presented in today's world that you need to be the best at X, Y, or Z. And it's tough. It's tough to be the very best. Statistically, only one person can be the best at one certain thing. It's likely it's not going to be you. It's not going to be me. But there is a system that Scott Adams applies where you can become good or very good, or at least better than most people, with a small amount of work. And when you start latticing over skills, you can become the best person for a job because you have 10 different intersections of skill sets that you're good at instead of one thing that you're excellent at. Now, if you're the best in the world at something, hopefully it's something that pays you a lot of money. You have the Elon Musk, LeBron James, and Charlie Mungers of the world. If, however, you're not Steph Curry, then you can benefit exponentially at becoming just good at a few different things. Take engineering, design, and presentation skills. If you are just good at those skills, you're going to be pretty unstoppable. So he takes a lot of time to point out that the more skills that you build, the more likely you are to become successful in the future. So you just start building complementary skills, and it's going to be easier and easier to be successful. One of the best ways to build skill sets is just trying to do new things. And this is probably the most interesting point that he makes in the whole book regarding trying and failing, that he's learned the most from trying things in his life, but he's failed at most things that he's tried. And that sounds a lot like me. As an example, Scott Adams points out, he tried working at a bank after college and failed, but during that failure, he learned contracts, negotiations, personnel management. He failed forward, and that's a concept that he hit on this book. He learned something useful during the process of failing, all things that he applied to future ventures. I found the only way that I truly learn a skill set is when it's applicable to my life. I would have never learned about podcasting, audio equipment, or digital mixing, any of this stuff, had it not been for me wanting to do something like this show. I could have read about it all day long just trying to pass the time during work, 
and I would have learned nothing because it's about the practicality of it. And that's how I feel about a lot of different skill sets. If I don't use the technique in my life, reading up on it isn't going to do much for me. So he starts off the book talking about how important failure is and how people can use failure to be successful in life. But he launches into a whole other part talking about how systems are necessary to be successful as well. If I had to guess, I would imagine one of the things he's most well known for out of this book is the idea that goals suck and systems rule. He states that a goal-oriented person is in a continual state of failure while people working in systems always feel that they win. This is a tough concept. It can get confusing. Take weight loss. If your goal is to lose 10 pounds, every minute of the day, you're failing until you meet the goal. Once you've achieved the goal, it's it either disappears or it's replaced by a new goal and the failure cycle begins again. This in contrast to a person who wants to have a healthy lifestyle and they set up a system to eat right and get some exercise every day. Every time they go play tennis, they win. Every time they eat a salad instead of a burger, they win because it's a system. And I understand the difference is nuanced That can be convoluted, maybe even some overlap, but that's the upshot. While creating a system, it's important to look at a couple things. First, keep your system simple. The more complicated a system, the more likely it will fail. And if you feel like you're failing soon enough, you're going to drop it completely. So choose simple, even if simplicity comes at the cost of optimization. And optimization is great when you can achieve it, but I do think Scott makes a really good point in his book He doesn't cover it all that much, but in today's world, we always hear about optimizing everything. But optimization comes at a cost, and this really isn't covered a lot, to look at a system or a problem, not from an optimal standpoint, but from looking at the inverse, you can probably achieve 80 to 90% of what you're looking for with way less effort. And what does that mean? If we're discussing weight loss or health, optimizing is almost an endless path. At first, It's great if you're coming from a bad place. The guidance looks something like eat more fruits and vegetables, less processed food, less meat. You start doing that, then you move into great. Well, now you got to cut out even more meat and don't eat white potatoes, rice, or flour. And then you're looking to optimize more. Then it goes to remove nightshades, cut down on the fruit. Then it goes into, well, you're doing very good, but you can optimize more. There's so many nutrients in your vegetables that you're just cooking out. So stop cooking it. And in the end, you just end up eating raw broccoli and cauliflower because that's optimal. But if you set up a simple system to help you be successful, it starts looking at the problem inversely, something like Jacoby would do. So you would look at the problem not as how do I optimize health, but how do I become as unhealthy as possible? And if you wanted to focus on on eating unhealthy, you would eat as much processed food as you want, including tons of meat. And you can take that and flip it around and get a nice heuristic. Michael Polian, he phrases it really nicely, eat real food, mostly vegetables, not too much. If that's your system, you can win all the time. It's simple to follow. And that's the point that I feel that Scott Adams is trying to get across, is that if you have a goal, you are constantly failing until the very moment that you succeed And then normally the goal is dropped because you already executed it. But if you have a system, you're going to be 
in a continual state of success as long as you're complying with the parameters of the system. So why keep the system simple? Complexity is the enemy of execution. Simple things work, complicated things don't. But to understand how to make something simple, you have to understand your priorities. And I've talked about this before. A priority is a thing that you need to get right so the things you love can thrive. We like to think that priorities are different for every person, but he succinctly points out in this book that just having good health and sufficient money are necessary for a base level of happiness for everybody. And this is pretty well documented in publications. Importantly, you need to have good relationships with your partners, family, and friends to really enjoy life. So you have that base level, health and money, but then you need the relationships to really enjoy life. And when I read that in the book, it reminds me of of what Naval says about happiness. And and it kind of comes thrown in the face of the money part. Naval states that a calm mind, a fit body, and loving relationships are all things money can't buy. So he's saying the same thing about what's important in life, but then he's taken away the money aspect of it. And I really don't know who said what first. I don't know if Naval has read Scott Adams, if Scott Adams listens to Naval, or maybe they both read Talib. That part I don't know. But I feel they harmonize with each other. And same with Nassim Talib. All three of them have similar messages. It's probably why I like them and reread these authors. This book really hits home that most of what life is is about figuring out happiness. That's the point of life. And there are ways that we can manipulate that because our brains are programmable. We can do things to improve our energy and our happiness. A big way to influence our own happiness is to do what you want when you want. And that's simple. A flexible schedule with moderate resources is greater than a person with a lot of resources and a schedule set in stone. And I really like this concept because that's what I'm trying to go for. I do have a flexible work schedule as of right now. I don't know if that'll continue I have a feeling that there might be different demands as my life goes on. But that was one of the points on my previous podcast about FIRE because FIRE allows people to get flexible schedules to do the things that they want to do. But other areas that you can manipulate to increase your happiness are sleep, diet, and exercise. And the great thing about sleep, diet, and exercise, they're all things that you and I can control. There's probably an argument out there that if you haven't been as happy as you usually are, take a look at those three factors first. If you can adjust those inputs, that's probably going to make a significant difference in your personal day-to-day happiness. And speaking of happiness, there's a halo effect to happiness. The happier you are in one aspect of your life, the less energy you need to put into the others to achieve happiness. So if you are at a job that's draining the life out of you day in and day out, you may be searching for other things to add energy back into your life. And that's why he talks about these concepts early in the book because the happier you are in life, it's going to spill over into other areas. So sleep, diet, and exercise are the big three day-to-day things that you can do to really increase your happiness. And having a flexible schedule really allows a person to, to focus in on those things. But Scott Adams also talks about how reducing daily decisions, doing things that you can improve at, and helping others can incrementally improve happiness as well. So stay with me here. This is an interesting concept because there has been a lot of publications on how reducing daily decisions can really help with decision fatigue. Now, decision fatigue is a concept that 
the more decisions a person has to make, the quality of their decisions deteriorate over time. So in the morning, you might be able to say no to that leftover chocolate cake that was sitting on the kitchen island from the night before, but after a hard day at the office where you had to make a thousand decisions, no matter how small, you give in and you eat the whole thing. That's decision fatigue. And you can only fight so long, but you can help yourself by not having to make a lot of big decisions. And this is where Mark Zuckerberg comes in. He wears the the gray hoodie and the blue jeans every single day, so he doesn't have to make a decision on what to wear. He probably drinks the same fish head soup every morning out the door before he goes to the office. Any small decision that he can reduce is going to help him when the decisions count later in the day. So have a routine when you get up. You know what you're going to do. You know where you're going to be. You don't have to make those decisions on the spot, even though you're not even marking them as significant. The concept of doing things that you can improve at. I understand why he puts this in there. This feeds into a couple psychological factors. First off, passion in and of itself is kind of overrated kind of bullshit. Only in the sense that people say that passion is really what drives them. But passion changes with success. I found that there's a direct correlation. The more success you have in something, probably the more passionate you are about it. I know that's that works for me. The more successful I am with something, the more passionate I am for it. That's why if you choose things that you can improve at over time, it's going to keep your passion high. The second psychological concept that has to do with, with that happiness output of improvement, it's found that people are happier the more frequent good events occur in their lives. For example, if you win $10,000 a month for a year, that's going to be better for your happiness than winning the lump sum of $100,000 or $120,000. Because humans, we normalize our lives pretty quickly. So that feeling of joy and happiness from winning is eventually going to normalize, no matter how much you win. could be a million dollars. It's eventually going to normalize in your life. But if you get the frequency right, that can keep your happiness ticked up. Picking up a hobby or a job that you can improve at provides that frequency to sustain the happiness. Lastly, that last concept about helping others. This is an old heuristic. They've been talking about this for centuries. Gandhi, he was attributed to saying that the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. And then Viktor Frankl stated something pretty similar in that one of the ways a person can find meaning is to be in the service of others. To both of them, there's no higher calling. This is an area I need continuous recalibration in my life. The times that I get stressed out and depressed is usually when I'm focused inward. I have this natural reaction to focus internally when things are are getting stressed in my life or when they're going wrong. And it gets into this bad feedback loop the more inward I look, the worse things get. It's not until I pull up and remember that that my partner and my family are the most important things in my life that things usually start getting better. With Mallory and my family, I know everything is going to be okay. That is what I need. They're my center ten pole. But my base instinct is to start focusing on myself when the stress starts getting poured on. It's not a good natural instinct for me, and I have to continuously recalibrate that. So Scott Adams does a great job of describing how people can manipulate their lives to increase their happiness. And I think it's clever to look at our brains as these soft, mushy computers that can be programmed. And there's enough empirical evidence 
that we can understand that work and schedule, diet, exercise, sleep, they're all big factors for our daily happiness. I mentioned earlier the concept of failing forward. The term failing is often used as a pejorative, but he's found that his failing is the only reason that he's been successful to date. And that is not intuitive. I think he brings up this great point that not enough people talk about their failures and how those failures serve them. But that's been my life. I've learned how to make good decisions through experience, but I've only gotten that experience through making bad decisions. I think that's the same exact concept as learning from failure. Scott Adams points out in this book that the big point of a system is to do things consistently, and that consistency is is going to allow luck to happen. And to add to the whole thing about people don't talk about their failures enough and how that attributes to their success, a lot of people don't give luck enough credit. I was recently talking with my mom. I was talking to her about how luck has been the the primary factor of anything that you could consider success in my life, that I've tried to be ready for opportunities when they presented themselves, but without luck, nothing would come from my hard work or my preparation. Systems in your life allow luck to find you is a good way to present this. Stephen Pressfield said the same thing in his book, The War of Art. He says, sit down, do the work every day, and the muse knows where to find you. I'll finish this podcast as Adam finished the book. Remember, failure is your friend. It is the raw material of success. Invite it in. Learn from it and don't let it leave you until you've picked its pockets clean. I like that concept, not to be scared of failure, to keep trying, and to understand that even if you're failing, it's going to serve you well in the future. You just might not be able to see what that path looks like at this time. So, Overall, do I need to say it? I like this book. It's a reread. That was the whole point of me going to that diatribe in the beginning of the podcast about rereads. I really like it. He's put out some other books like Win Bigly and and something else, but I haven't read that stuff. I imagine I would like it. Probably worth me putting in the old Amazon cart maybe later in the future, but that is it, folks. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. My goal is to get up to about two podcasts a week. So keep checking in. Having a new baby in the house makes things more sporadic, but it's good to have a system in place to sit down, do the work, and maybe there'll be something good that comes from it. Music, as always, is provided by James Spensley. That dude knows how to shred. See you later. I'm out. <laughs>